Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. We're going to jump into this new series for Lent. And before I get too far into that, I'd like to ask Jerry's got a stack of cards. I want uh, Jerry and maybe Micah, can you guys pass this, this stack of cards out right now? Don't let these go by. Take one. I will explain momentarily, okay? Um, yeah, just all the way down each aisle. You can count them or you can just whatever you like. Um, don't like go, oh, that's not for me. Take one. You're like, oh, I don't know about this. It says commitment. Listen, I'm not signing you up for anything. Take one. I'm not going to ask for these back, just so you're aware. Like, whatever you put on these cards, I'm not going to be, like, judging them or grading them or anything like that. This is for you. This is for your benefit. Some of you know, some of you don't know that Lent began this week with Ash Wednesday. Uh, Some of you are like, that's why people were walking around with dirty foreheads on Wednesday. Yes, that's why. Um, So what I want to invite you to do, you don't have to do this now. This card is for you to engage in some sort of intentional practice this Lent season for the sake of your own spiritual growth and development. Uh, And so one of the ways that we do that, you've got the, the list there. There's a, for Lent, I'm going to abstain from, fill in the blank, and for Lent, I'm going to engage in. And these are practices that, so don't just be like, well, I'm, I'm giving up chocolate cake even though I don't like it. Don't do that. The intention of these cards is to take a step and say, man, you know, social media has a real grip on my life. And if I look at my iPhone, it says I spend three hours a day on Facebook. Maybe for Lent, I'm not going to engage in Facebook on my phone. And we're going to take that time and intentionally position ourselves in a place where God can shape us. And so maybe that's, I'm going to take that three hours. Can you imagine what you would do with three hours? I'm going to take that three hours, and instead I'm going to engage in, a, in prayer, or I'm going to engage in reading scripture, or, or some, uh, some intentional po- uh, posturing before the Lord that he might shape you through the next uh, seven weeks. Okay? So that's for you. When you get done writing that, put it on your bathroom mirror, put it on your, if you're trying to give up some sort of food, put it on your refrigerator, you know, any of those things, okay? This is for you, and I will explain here in a minute more and more why we do that, okay? Cool? This is not just a legalistic thing. I intend for you to grow. That's what I hope you want when you come here, is that you want to grow closer to Jesus. So that's my intent, okay? I'm never going to ask for those back. Uh, They are for you and your own uh, development. So... Many of you guys knew I grew up in a Lutheran church, uh, and as a kid in a Lutheran church, um, I had no idea what Lent was all about. No idea. All I knew is that Lent meant I had to go to church more, right? Those of you who grew up, you know, in, in a denominational church, Lent means we go on Wednesday and we go on Sunday, right? And then the week before Easter, we go Thursday, we go Friday, we go Sunday. Do you guys know this one? And so, I, but I didn't know why. The only way I knew Lent began was that my forehead got dirty and I started going to church on Wednesdays. 
That's the only way I knew, but I didn't know what the purpose of Lent was. And so over a period of time, when I walked away from Jesus when I was in college and then eventually found my way back to faith in Jesus, when I went to, Lent was one of those practices that I was certainly happy to give up. I gave up Lent for Lent. Um, It was, yeah, thanks, thanks. It, was, it actually was a joke, but, um, but I, I, I just let it go because it didn't make any sense to me. The idea of Lent, if you read the Bible, you don't find Lent anywhere in the Bible. You find things that are similar, but you don't find Lent in the Bible. So what's the purpose of Lent? Well, Lent is this, this season where we engage in intentional spiritual spring cleaning, okay? So we, we open ourselves to God and allow Him to say, this has sort of accumulated, right? Facebook has really gotten a hold of your life. Man, you binge Netflix every night of the week. Maybe this is, uh, this is not good for you because it's built on the idea that the things we do do things to us. And I don't know if you realize that, but the things that you engage in habitually do things to you. They shape you in some sort of way. Your life is a liturgy. It's built to shape you in a certain way. And so in Lent, what we do is we open ourselves up and we say, God, this is a thing that I sense that has really gotten a hold of my life. I'm going to abstain from it for the sake of engagement with you. And so that's why we pick a practice to to engage in. We pick some sort of like, maybe I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast uh, lunch. I'm not going to eat lunch all the way through Lent. And every time at lunch, I'm going to take that hour and I'm going to pray or I'm going to read scripture, or I'm going to, you know, go on a prayer walk or something. We engage in something for the sake of our own development. You can't make yourself grow, but you can put yourself in a position where God will grow you. And so that's what we're doing in Lent. And this is beautiful practice where we intentionally make space for God to show us who we are. And I don't know about you, but if you let God show you who you are, over a period of time, you discover you don't like what you find, right? Have you ever discovered that, that, you know, you kind of get sick of yourself after a little while? And you discover there are these things about my life that really should change, and I don't know how to change them, and I just don't like it. And the beautiful thing is, God doesn't like it either. You guys are on the same side. You both want these things to be different. And so there's this thing that happens in Lent where we exchange what has become a part of our life for what God wants to put in our life. And so that's the idea behind this, idea, this uh, exchange series is that we're engaging in Lent on purpose in an exchange with the Lord, that God would give us what is full and what is whole in place of what we've held on to that is broken and a mess. We engage in an exchange. And the cool thing is, everything about life with God is this way. Everything about life with God is this way, right? Beauty for ashes, my brokenness for his righteousness, my sinfulness for his holiness, right? Isn't everything about your relationship with God built on exchange? That you give up the things of yourself that are broken and are not as they ought to be, and he gives you of his wholeness. This is the exchange that we engage in. And so today I want to talk about your relationship with God as an invitation to exchange. And I'm calling this message, I want something better. I want something better. Would you pray with me and then we'll turn to God's word. So Holy Spirit, I do invite you to come in greater measure. And God, as we turn our hearts toward you even more intentionally in this Lent season, God, I pray that you would meet us. 
that you would shape us, that you would change us. God, that we would be uh, more like Jesus as a result of having engaged in these practices. Lord, I pray that you would speak to me and that you would speak through me. Lord, that my words would become your words or the other way around, that your words would become mine. Would you put power on this message? Fill me with your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 61. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 61. And we're going to spend... It's going to bother me a whole lot. There we go. <laughs> we're going to spend all of Lent in Isaiah chapter 61. Some of you will know this, this passage or you'll at least be familiar with it. Um, but we're going to spend the whole uh, series in Isaiah 61. Today I'm going to give you like a 35,000 foot view. We're going to take a, a broad look at Isaiah chapter 61 and the, some of the things that we can take away from it. And in com the coming weeks, we're going to break it down into subsections. There are some specific things that we're going to find as we look at Isaiah 61. Uh, but some of the things you need to know before we start is Isaiah is a prophet from among the nation of Israel, who God called to basically tell Israel that they were messed up and he was upset with them. To tell them about the judgment that's coming, that, he's going to, that God was going to exile the nation of Israel because they had not represented him the way that they were supposed to. And so uh, Isaiah, or, um, yeah, Isaiah was from uh, 740 B.C. to 680 B.C., in case you're a historical uh, person. And the nation of Israel had failed to represent God well, and so God's judgment's about to come. And so from the very beginning of Isaiah, we see that God calls Isaiah, and the first 39 chapters are basically God outlining, uh, outlining his case. He's making a case against the nation of Israel. I've called you to live this way, and yet you have not lived this way. I've called you to be a righteous people You've not been a righteous people. I've called you to be a people for my name. I've called you to be a people who represent me to the world, and you haven't done it. And as a result of that, another nation is going to carry you off into exile. That's the first 39 chapters in uh, three sentences. But then at chapter 40, hope begins to come back into the picture. The last word from God is never judgment. The last word is always hope. And so in chapter 40, this idea that after the exile, we're going to get the land back, we're coming back. And so from 40 to 55, chapters 40 to 55, Isaiah talks about a return from exile, that judgment will end and I will again return to the land. But the thing that happens in 40 to 55 is there's this dissonance, there's this weird kind of like hum that's happening in the background, which is like, you would think after judgment, these people would understand what they were supposed to do and they would do it right. But 40 to 55 says, even though we've come back from exile, we still don't live right. There's still something wrong. There's still something amiss. We still don't represent God the way we're supposed to. And in the chapters 40 to 55, God introduces this figure that doesn't really get a name other than the suffering servant. That there will be a suffering servant who lives perfectly righteous and who stands in the stead of Israel and lives the way that Israel was supposed to live but could not and takes the punishment due Israel on himself, the suffering servant. Well then, after we get past chapter 55, we begin to see the results of the activity of this suffering servant. 
And where we are in chapter 61, we see what comes of life after the suffering servant is successful in his mission. And so that's where chapter 61 falls. It's It's a glimpse of what life is supposed to look like once the suffering servant has accomplished what he's supposed to do. And so we're going to read this. Chapter 61, beginning of verse 1, it says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people." And make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people of the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, And a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all the nations. Now, I don't know if you noticed this. As we read this passage, there's all kinds of exchanges happening. Did you see that? Joy for your mourning and and, and binding up for your brokenness. There's all kinds of exchanges happening. And in the coming weeks, we're going to look specifically at those. But what I want you to see today is the kinds of things that God intends to exchange with his people. The kinds of things. And what I want you to take home is that at any level in your life, God desires to take what is not and give you what is. That's the exchange that happens. A relationship with God is you give him your brokenness, he gives you his righteousness. And so at any level, what I want you to remember when you leave here is that a relationship with God is one of exchange, that you give him what you don't want, what you don't need, what is short of the kingdom of God, and he gives you the fullness. That's what I want you to take away. So I want to show a couple of exchanges to you. The first exchange that I want you to see is this exchange of your experience, Exchange of experience. Look at uh, verse 4. It says, They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities. Verse 5, Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. Things will change. When when the suffering servant accomplishes what he's after, your experience changes. 
in Isaiah's prophecy to Israel, they become this enslaved people again. If you know your Bible, the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt. And then the exodus happens, and they become this free people who have this, this land and this blessing and all this stuff, but then they're going to become enslaved again. That's what Isaiah is saying. You're going to be enslaved again. And in that exile, the cities in Israel are overturned. They're destroyed. Their land no longer belongs to them. The fields where they work, the crops and the animals are all a distant memory. And they're taken away and they become slaves. But Isaiah says that God will exchange your exile experience for an experience of freedom and healing and restoration and influence. That God will take the brokenness and make it healing. That God will take your enslavement and he will make it freedom. That God will take your lostness and make it restoration. And God will take your powerlessness and make it influence. That your experience changes. That that's one of the things that God wants to exchange is your experience. In a room like this, there certainly are, are folks who are experiencing right now things that are not the way they're supposed to be. You know, you have that marriage, you got married, and you, you had, you know, the, the beautiful wedding day and the, the dress and, the, and the, all the flowers and all of the stuff. And then you got into the marriage and you're like, this is harder than I thought it was going to be. He doesn't love me like he said he would. She's not faithful to me like she said she would be. Where your experience is not what God desires. Some of us are, are, are enslaved to, to substances like alcohol or pornography, and we do this to sort of cope with the brokenness of our lives, and we live in this broken life over and over, day in and day out, and we're just coping. And we go, I didn't grow up wanting to be an addict. This is not the experience I thought I was going to have. This is just not measuring up all of my relationships. I used to feel so free. I used to feel so free, and now I feel just trapped. And I imagine a number of us, we can feel that way, can't we? Are we living in experiences that are less than what God desires? And what God says is, I will trade you your broken experience for my wholeness. That the last word in your experience is not judgment and brokenness. The last word in ex your experience is hope and restoration and freedom. That God's desire is always for freedom and always for wholeness. God's desire is to exchange your brokenness for his wholeness. The second thing that, he, that we see in this is, is that God will exchange your emotions. God exchanges emotion. Look at verse 2. To comfort all who mourn. God desires to comfort those who mourn. To provide for those who grieve in Zion and bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Look at verse 7. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. So because of the things that Isaiah says... Israel is going to experience an exile, they begin to mourn, and they experience despair, and they experience shame, and all of these horrible emotions that just begin to overtake them. But then I say, Isaiah says, God's going to exchange those for joy. God, God's going to exchange your mourning for praise. But there's an exchange that happens. You know, sometimes we section things off, and maybe you've done this before. We section things off in our lives. That these are the things that God deals with. 
and the rest is up to me. Have you been there? Right? We call these things spiritual things, right? This is my spiritual life. You guys know a grapefruit? You guys, any of you ever eat a grapefruit? You cut it in half, you know, it has the little sections, right? And so you, you can eat little sections. I mean, that's, as a kid, that's what we used to do. Sugar, you know, that kind of thing. That's why I look like I do. Um, but sometimes we think of our Christian life or our, our life as a whole this way, right? This section is my spiritual section. This is the domain for God. But here's the emotional section. Here's the physical section. Here's the mental section. These are for myself and health professionals to take care of. And so we section off our life, and we, we relegate God just to the spiritual stuff. We say, well, this is the area that God deals with. And incidentally, in the West, that's a lot of our resistance to this idea of physical healing being something God does is because it doesn't fit in the spiritual section that we've made for God. And so even if we get to the place of saying, well, we see in the Bible that God does physical healing. That's a thing that God does. In the West, we have a hard time with God doing anything with our emotions. Don't we? Like we sort of like, I feel like every time we talk about emotional health or emotions, people go, ah, that's just like, you know, that's for counselors, that's for this, that's for that. It's, but it's certainly not something that God does. There's so much resistance to God doing anything around emotional health. And it's the same resistance because what we've said is these are the spiritual things. Emotional health belongs in the things I deal with. These are not God's things. But the way the Bible talks about it is that our lives are more like chocolate milk. You put milk, you put chocolate, you swirl it around. You can't find the milk or the chocolate. It's just sort of all together. That's the biblical worldview of how your life works that it's all integrated, that it's all under God's authority, that everything about your life is a spiritual aspect to it. Everything, your money has a spiritual aspect to it. You don't think so, but it does. It will grip you at a soul level if you don't, if you don't do something about it. Your emotions, there's a spiritual part to that, but it's all spiritual. There's not a subset of, of what we do. And so to dismiss this idea that, that wholeness is available in emotions and that that's something that, that God does is to cut off a huge part of your own growth and development. And I talked about this at the beginning of the pandemic. Some of you remember, do you remember I was preaching to a Zoom camera? That was not fun. Um, it's a little intimidating because I can actually see what everybody's doing. But uh, anyway, that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. But if you need proof that emotional health is an important thing, if you don't want to just dismiss it, let me just say to you, for at least the last 70 years, psychiatrists have said that the emotional health in our country is on the decline, and they've been concerned about it. For at least the last 70 years, right after World War II, is some of the earlier psychiatrists who are concerned about the, the decline in American emotional health. And over time, it has gotten worse. And the problem is, it's been on such a decline that the doctors are afraid and psychiatrists are afraid there's not enough emotional health in the American system to turn the trend the other way. That we're going to just keep on keeping on right into the ground. That's what they're concerned about. And of course, you know, doctors are trying to like figure out, well, how do we fix this? What do we do with this declining emotional health? If you need proof that this is actually happening, just think of how much anxiety is so prevalent in our society right now. Like, I talk to a lot of people, younger people, who are so socially anxious that relationship becomes next to impossible. 
Just think about how, how much anxiety, like if you think about all of the stuff that has gone on in the past couple of years, right? Everybody got super anxious with COVID, right? And it didn't take much to just, everybody pops, right? And you keep wondering, well, why are people on the news just doing crazy stuff? Well, because everybody is hyper anxious and nobody is able to manage their own anxiety. Emotional health is at an all-time low. Every stimulus in our nation comes with a level 10 response, doesn't it? Like every stimulus, every, everything that happens, everybody responds at level 10, right? We don't have any ability to have a commensurate response as a society. I mean, and maybe you've seen it in yourself. Like think for a minute about how close under the surface anger and sadness reside in your own life. Like just think about it. How much does it take for you to get triggered to lose your mind? Right? Like I drop a coffee mug, and then I have to kick something. How quick are you to respond in anger? Or how quick, do, how, what does it take for you to get triggered to tears? Like, what does it take for you to get triggered to tears? Like, you get your Sheets hot dog, and they put ketchup and mustard, even though you didn't ask for mustard, and you fall apart? I mean, it's not just my daughter that does that. But think about how close under the surface those emotions reside. We are unable as a society to manage the emotional reactions and we just pop over and over, right? Have you seen it? Somebody pulls in on the highway just a little bit too close for your comfort and you're ready to kill them, right? I'm going to tailgate these guys. I hope the cops get right. We're just like, you guys running this in your head, you know? I hope the cops get them or they're going to go off the road or whatever, right? We just, it takes no time for us to like become different people. And I'm not saying it's bad to experience anger or sadness. What I'm saying is that we've become so emotionally unhealthy that our responses are inconsistent with the triggers. Our emotional health as a nation is so bad that we've become inconsistent with the triggers. And what psychologists say is that the, the, the necessary health to actually turn the trend is less and less available. But here's the thing. This is, God always provides an answer through his people. God always provides an answer through his people. He always provides a credible witness by people he's transforming, which is why as a church we've pressed so heavily into emotional health. It's so important because the community around you needs you to be emotionally healthy. Desperately. The community around you, around you needs you to be the kind of person who can manage the anxiety you feel and yet provide a thoughtful response instead of just reacting. Don't we? Don't we need that? Like it doesn't take anything at all and everybody loses their mind. Wouldn't it be amazing if the church was known for not losing their mind? If we would bring health to the situation. If you guys haven't heard me talk about emotionally focused, it used to be called faith walking. I want to just tell you, I'm taking a handful of guys to a, a retreat next week. We are in talks to bring that here, to have one of those here in the fall. So I'm hopeful that you guys will begin to consider this as something that, that you need to, to press into. Because what I believe is that God's answer comes from within his redeemed people. That we experience emotional wholeness and we bring this to people who are never going to show up here. That's the whole thing. I finish every service saying we want to be people who transform the spaces we inhabit by the power of the gospel. This is one of those things. 
that you show up at work and when everybody else is losing their mind, you don't. You show up to your class and when everybody else is losing their mind, you don't. In your family, you're the one that can keep it all together, right? We need this desperately. And what Isaiah shows is that God's desire is to make an emotional exchange. And the third thing that I want to point out is, is that God's desire is to exchange your identity. Look at verse 3. They will be called oaks of righteousness. This is identity language, right? They're going to be called. This is going to be their name from the essence of who they are. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Skip down to verse 6. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. I, I want to just pause for a second. They're getting kicked out of the land for being exactly the opposite of this. Do you catch this? Isaiah is saying, we're going to call you something that you are not. And it's not like we're going to pretend, fake it till you make it. God is going to make them this. An exchange of identity is going to happen. That's what Isaiah is saying. And here's the thing. God does that all over the place. One of the amazing things that God has the ability to do is change who you are at the core. At the depth of who you are, when you say, well, this is who I am, I'm a mother, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm an engineer, I'm a tech worker, whatever you call yourself, when you get down to the core of your being, the thing that is the essence of who you are, God has the ability to exchange that. And he's so brilliant at it. If you, you know, I think of people like, like Peter in the New Testament. Have you guys read enough of the New Testament to see Peter? Like, Peter has no anchor whatsoever in his life. I don't know if you've watched this. Whatever room he's in, he just adapts to that room, and that's who he is now. Oh, we're, uh, we're not eating these things. Okay, not going to eat it. Oh, we're eating these things now. Okay, I'm going to eat that. Oh, like, I've got to be like the guy that's getting out of the boat, right? Got to show everybody I'm... Whatever room he's in, Peter is constantly changing. He's the most flighty guy in the world. Super passionate. You'd like him. But he's a flighty guy. There's no anchor. There's no substance to the core of who he is. And yet Jesus goes, I'm going to call you Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. He's saying, you are going to be someone on whom you are so stable, on whom I can build my church. He changes Peter's identity. Or, or think of Matthew. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Guy who wrote Matthew. Matthew's this tax collector, which is like, Code for, I cheat my own people for my own benefit. He overtaxes his own people so that he can be rich. And Jesus calls him and says, on you, I'm going to build the kingdom of God. Like you are a pillar in the kingdom of God. You think about this. Somebody who takes for their own benefit, that that cheats their own people, he says, I'm going to use you to build righteousness. God is always doing this thing of, of changing identities. One of the things that you'll discover when you press into emotional health is most of the time it's not emotions that's the problem. Emotions is where it shows up. The problem is we have some deep-seated core identity issue that we're broken at an identity level, and it shows up in our emotions. And before we get too uh, far in pointing fingers at everyone else, it's not that much different in the church. It's not that much different in me. I can't tell you how many times I've found in myself, like, Wow, I thought I was building my life on something a little bit more solid than that, but this little thing has crept in. Huh, I care a little bit too much what people think about me. We live in a nation full of people who don't know who they are. We live in a nation full of people who don't know who they are. And so we go about our lives 
trying on all these identities, right? We try them all on. Like, I'm a mom, right? Yeah, I'm not a mom. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'm a wife. And I, and I put that at the core of who I am. You know, I'm a child. I'm, I'm a, I, I work uh, in, uh, in this particular office. I, I work in this particular career. Maybe we uh, build our lives on our political affiliation. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm none of the above. And we begin to make that the core of who we are. We build it on our sexuality or we build it on what people think of us or what we do for a living. And for all the things that we try to put at the core of who we are, all the things that we try on, what we constantly find is none of them can hold us up. None of them can hold us up. None of them are bedrock that we can build our lives on. They all let us down. And the Bible calls these things idols. We don't like that word, do we? Like, none of you go home and, like, fashion a statue and pray like the Old Testament talks about, right? But you build your life on something like your career. You know, you can, you can build your whole life on climbing the corporate ladder only to find it's leaning against the wrong wall. We build our lives on all kinds of wrong things. And we set our hope on these. And the Bible is really concerned about idols because God knows none of these things are able to stand being the foundation of your life. Every one of them eventually becomes a tyrant. It demands everything from you, and it can't supply you with life. You have to give everything that you are to serve something that can never feed you and can never give you life. And the threat of these idols triggers a deep emotional response, doesn't it? You find out where your idols are whenever somebody threatens them, right? I mean, just look at our, our nation is so, makes an idol so much of political affiliation. As soon as I stand up here and say something negative about either one of them, you'll come and kill me. So I dance that line a little bit, right? We've made, as soon as one of our idols gets touched, as soon as it feels threatened, we get triggered. We're like, you're touching the thing that my life is built on, and I'm going to do something to you now, right? Here's the thing about an idol. It demands your emotional energy to protect it. There's only one thing you can build your life on. It's the identity of being loved by God. It's the only thing that's, that can hold you up because here's why. God is life in and of himself. So when you build your life on it, he continues to supply you with life. And guess what? God never needs you to defend him. He fights his own battles. If you read all the way through Scripture over and over and over, it's be still and know that I am God. He doesn't need you to fight for him. There's a counterfeit. There's a religious spirit that counterfeits around as if, as if it is God. It is, it is this relationship, right? It's like, I know a lot about God. I know a lot about relationship with God. I know a lot about the Bible. But the way you can tell this religious spirit is it demands that you fight for God. It's inverted. God fights for himself. He doesn't need you. As soon as the thing that you're serving demands that you fight for it, you know you have an idol. And I'm just telling you, a religious spirit is a hard one to deal with. But this is one way you can know it, is it demands that you fight. What Isaiah says is that it's God's desire to make an exchange of identity with you. 
He wants to trade your false identities for the identity of being loved by God. And in chapter 61, what what Isaiah says is that when God is finally victorious, all of these things come. That we can exchange our experience, we can exchange our emotions, we can exchange our identity. But for Isaiah, he's standing at a distance and he's looking. And it's not yet come. It's a hope in the future. And if we just stop there, if we just stop at Isaiah, we would go, man, I have all these problems. And I need some help. And I can't exchange them. But we live in a time and a place where something has forever changed the trajectory of the world. In Luke 4, Jesus comes into the synagogue at the beginning of his ministry, and we find this. He, that's Jesus, went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you see what he's saying? I am the suffering servant. This has been accomplished. I have come to bring all of these things. He is the one in whom the promises of God are fulfilled. He is the one that makes the exchange possible. That we live in a place and a time where exchange is possible. That you can exchange your identity. That you can exchange your emotions. That you can exchange your experience. And he is making all things new again. He's the one. He has come. And it's available to you. Take it. Grab it. Don't miss it. Because of Jesus, we can live into the hope of the age to come. And that's good news. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.